This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady. Science and religion agree that in the beginning the cosmos moved from a state of nothingness to the existence of matter, but science has very little to say about this mysterious transition, all of it highly speculative. Scientists are even divided on whether matter was created all at once or whether it continues to be created. By contrast, there is remarkable unanimity among the initiate priests of the ancient world. Their secret teachings are encoded in sacred texts of the world's great religions. And in today's episode, we re-examine where science and religion once met with Ed Mabry, who returns here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with me, Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Ed Mabry. standpoint that it, it can still be light and energy because as i said our thoughts are energy our thoughts are electric you can't deny that that's scientifically provable with an ekg so the our consciousness is energy and it is light so so when you say he created something out of nothing i would say he created something out of consciousness and what he created was was vibrations he did it through vibrations it says in, in genesis that he spoke this physical world into existence. What he, and technically, if you want to be really technical about it, he's saying it into existence because the first chapter of Genesis is a poem which is meant to be sung. If you look at it in certain Bibles, it's rendered into stanzas. God said, let there be light. The light was good. Evening and morning was the first day. Then second day, third. So it's in stanzas. So God was actually singing this world into existence. And that's what words, songs are. They're vibrations. And so our physical, and as I said at the very beginning, our what we call our physical world is 
a basically a, a hologram made of sound and light. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is a returning guest. Mr. Ed Mabry is joining us here on the show to talk about a really all-encompassing topic, a topic that is sure to blow your mind and really connects to nearly everything we've talked about on the podcast. So without further ado, Ed, welcome back. It's a pleasure to have you back. And yeah, where should we get this conversation started? Maybe first introduce yourself or folks who might not have heard your other appearances on the show. Sure. Thank you, Mark. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it. So my name is, as you said, it's Ed Mabry. My website is uh, faithbyreason.net, not .com, .net. And that's like the main place to to reach me and to you know see all the stuff I've been doing for like almost a decade now. And I, you know, recently within the last few years around COVID time, I started, <clears throat> excuse me, my, my YouTube channel where I'm, you know, doing some deep dives into uh, end time stuff, book of revelation sort of thing. And I'm also on rumble as well, both under faith by reason. And again, I, as far as my background is concerned, you know, I am a, a, a truth seeker, a researcher and a Christian. I, you know, was raised Christian, but I've always had a really inquisitive mind. I've always questioned things, even my own faith. And it's led me on a journey to really understand everything from a big picture point of view with the world. You know, that's when I really want to understand you know, our, the entire cosmology of our existence. And that includes, you know, the spiritual realm, the material realm that we dwell in. And I just wanted to make sense to, to, you know, to whatever degree it can. And so Faith by reason is, you know, as the name implies, I use reason, logic, and systematic analysis, and I apply it to to my faith. And again, I'm a truther, conspiracy guy, so I'm all about all the government stuff and the elites and all that whatnot. But the more I've gotten into it, I've gone from being, you know, really political to realizing that, you know, the political stuff is just like pro wrestling. It's just like a college football rivalry. It's, you know, good guys versus bad guys. And when you really, and, you know, my team is a good team, your team's the bad evil team. But really, when you really get down to it, it, it becomes spiritual because these folks, whatever you want to call them, the elites, Illuminati, whatever title you want to give them, they're they're not just about the material world. I mean, it's not about money for them. They they have all the money. They can just print it. You know, it's not about power. They have all the power. It's really about spiritual stuff. And they and these people worship spiritual entities, whatever you want to call them. You want to call them the old gods, the the angels, the Elohim spirits, they worship them. And as Bill Cooper, the one of the OGs of the conspiracy world would say, it's not about what you believe, it's about what they believe. And if they believe in the spiritual and they're the ones who are, you know, de facto running the world, then it's important for us to make sure that we understand, you know, their, whether you believe in their spirituality or not, that you understand it and understand what they're doing and, and why they do it. Right. I know last time I was on with you, Mark, we talked a little bit about the the as above, so below um, spirituality aspect where they have, you know, in predictive programming where these folks are bound by spiritual laws to say or show what they're going to do before they do it, which is what predictive programming is all about. They're all obeying a spiritual law. Mm. And, you know, today I want to just take a deeper dive into the physics, so to speak, of spirituality in our realm and you know, and, and I think that's going to lead to some really, really interesting discoveries and explanations. Right. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on for this. And 
It's something that I think intuitively a lot of people come around to realizing that there's this sort of exoteric versus esoteric worldview and the people in power typically they'll enforce exoteric worldviews while holding esoteric worldviews. And, and when you realize that, that's the big whoa moment. And typically it comes when people start to learn about secret societies and the beliefs yeah. held within secret societies. But, you know, this secrecy, it, it's multi-purpose. It's not just to, to preserve their power. There's also a certain energy quotient, I, I believe, that you know, if they tell everybody what they're up to, you know, it doesn't quite work the way they would hope. So they have to have very rigid controls over this sort of mental paradigm of thought. And I wonder if the best way to have a control over that mental paradigm is to, to be the only one who really knows how it works, right? If, yep. if, if only the certain percentage of people on the earth know how this, you know, um, consciousness mechanism interacts with reality, then the rest of us are just kind of, you know, bumping around, making mistakes and, and not really sure why while they're, you know, gliding and doing the moonwalk from, <laughs> from victory to victory. Right. So, right. So, yeah, let's 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 begin, you know, to kind of unravel these concepts that are really a part of many people's worldviews. One of them is uh, the speed of light and light frequency, this whole idea that light is just something you see with your eye. Uh, where, where should we begin? Um, well, first of all, I also want to say, I think you nailed it. You hit the nail on the head with, with one of the things, well, what you just said about how, well, one of the reasons that for all the secrecy is that they really don't want, you know, the common people, the sheep, <laughs> the rest of us to know about the power of excuse me, the spiritual realm, because they can hoard it. I mean, I think that's been the the modus operandi of these people from the beginning. I mean, I trace the beginnings of these secret societies all the way back to, you can call it the biblical times, the times of the of Babel or Sumeria. I think they're, they're pretty much, they coincide when you have had, you know, the first people were given instructions by, you know, what they call the gods. I call them, you know, the fallen angels or fallen Elohim. They were the ones who, you know, when, when they, when these the entities came down and according to the, you know, the book of Genesis chapter six and the, and the book of, of Enoch, they came down and they procreated with women and they took them as wives. And so that didn't mean they just had intercourse with them. They, they mean, they actually made them legally wives and they gave them information and they hoarded that information and these small groups hoarded it. And they've continued to do that to this day. So that's one reason why I think we don't experience the spiritual very much because, you know, the people who know how it works and, and draw power from it, keep it secret. And the other reason is what we're going to get into. The, the other reason I think we don't experience the spirituality the way that people may have, have experienced it in the ancient times is because of, of science and physics. And that has to do with the speed of light. So I'll just segue on into that. So, yeah, um, entropy is, yeah. is the word that's coming yes. to mind. And yeah, without further ado, let's get right into it, brother. Okay, so let's talk really quickly about our physical world. And, you know, so a little quick physics lesson, probably something you guys have already, you know, heard or, or learned in school, but just a little review is that, you know, the building blocks of our physical reality, or, you know, the smallest complete particles, you know, it's called the atom. You have, you know, the, the nucleus, which has protons and neutrons, and you have the electrons that are orbiting that nucleus. 
But, you know, in the, the drawings we see in school are, are not the scale. They, you know, they usually show, you know, the nucleus and then like the electron orbiting like an inch away from it or whatever in your in your textbooks. But the truth is that that those ratios are off by a factor of 100,000 to one. By that, I mean that most of the atom that we, what we call the atom is empty space. I gave the illustration before that if you were to enlarge an atom, of course, they're very tiny. You can't even you can't even see them under a microscope. You have to have special equipment to even observe them. But if you were to enlarge the nucleus of an atom to like the the, uh, the point of a pin, you were to able to like to go to a football field, get an ink pen and put a dot on the 50 yard line. Those electrons will be orbiting through each end zone. That's how. And so the rest of that's empty space. And if you were to enlarge it to the size of a baseball, the, the nucleus to the size of a baseball, the electrons would be orbiting seven miles away uh, in, in uh, radius. So again, 99.9% of it is empty space. And the part that the particles themselves, you know, electrons don't even have mass. Their mass is inferred by their speed. And then the protons and neutrons, which actually, which actually do have weight, when you get them down to their components that make them up, which are called quarks, they're basically, they're vibrations. So... Our world, our physical world is basically made of light and vibrations. We, we live in a hologram, Mark. I mean, to just put it in, in terms, in, in the scientific terms, we live in a, a sound and light hologram. That's what vibrations are. So all that to say that this world we live in is technically a simulation because it's a hard light simulation, like, you know, the holodeck on the old Star Wars, excuse me, Star Trek shows. So what, what are we simulating? Well, we're simulating the spiritual realm. So the so you can basically say our physical realm is a a pale simulation or a reflection of the real world, which is the spiritual world. So so I'm about to get to the speed of light, I promise. Um, so what is the spiritual realm made of, or or what is or what are its qualities? Well, again, as as a Christian, I you know, believe that the spiritual realm is the, is the heavens. It's where you know God and the angels are more accurately the Elohim angel or it comes from the Greek angelos, which just means messenger. It's a job title. What they actually are is in, in the Bible, they're called the Elohim, which means they, they dwell in the spiritual realm. The um, Bible says that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all, meaning he's 100% light. He is infinite light. And that light is in the is what the spiritual realm is made up of. And the entities that occupy it, these Elohim, they're also light or fire. And they're, they're described that way in the Bible. These The seraphim are said to be made of fire. So we are reflection of, of, of that light, of that energy. And so what does that mean as far as what we, what we experience and what we can say about what things have, were like at the, like you could say, the, the foundation of creation and where we are today? I think that comes down to the speed of light, which is what Mark was you know, talking about earlier. Now, before the 1700s, it was light was considered to be infinite. They thought it was unmeasurable. It did not have a discrete speed. Like it was instantaneous. As soon as you see, as soon as you see light, it's there. It's not traveling. You turn on a light or light a candle, the light's just there. However, in the 1700s, a Danish astronomer named Omar, excuse me, Ole Romar, discovered by observing the the passage of the moons of Jupiter and how they were, you know, in their rotation, he discovered that the speed of light, that, that light actually has a discrete speed, that it's not instantaneous, that it's not infinite. And that was, that revolutionized physics because you, you know, you can't measure the infinite. 
But when, but if light has a discrete speed, which was discovered to be 186,000 miles per second, once you discover that, now you can you can apply mathematics to it. Now you can start doing predictive modeling. Right. And we're sorry. no longer we're no longer just you know blindly floating in a in an right. ooze. There's uh, there's dimensions to our enclosure now. All of a sudden, exactly. And that's where all that's where our modern physics came from. Wow. People like, you know, Niels Bohr, who you know, created the first model of the atom and, you know, Max Planck and Heisenberg and Einstein and, and all and even um, um, Isaac Newton, all the great physicists of our time were able to start doing these predictive, predictive models based on that math. I mean, the, the famous equation E equals MC squared, you know, energy equals mass times the speed of light. C is the speed of light squared. So without that Without the speed of light being measurable and a constant, you don't have, you know, modern physics. And that, again, it revolutionized everything. It makes it basically made our technology today possible because, you know, they could they could do all those measurements. So, so fast forward to 1988 and you have two scientists from Australia named Barry Setterfield and Trevor Norman. You can you know, feel free to look those guys up. They published a paper where they postulated based on their research that not only was the speed of light not a constant, it has not always been 186,000 miles per second, but it's actually slowing down over time. Now, again, very, very, very minute quantities and very minute increments. So you would not something you wouldn't notice. Like you, you couldn't, you wouldn't say like, Hey, tomorrow, you know, yesterday the speed of light seemed a little bit faster. No, you don't notice it. It's happening in very small increments. However, it's happening predictably, measurably, and logarithmically, meaning over the farther you go in time, the more dramatic the effects of the speed of lights in cuts inconsistency occurs. Wow. Now, uh, please stop me if I'm cutting you off and, and getting no, you know ahead. ahead of things here, but you're reminding me of a pivotal book that seriously changed my life. I've probably mentioned it a hundred times on this podcast because of that. But in the beginning of Mark Booth's Secret History of the World, he explains mm -hmm. a similar concept, albeit in, in less terms. Um, and and I'm, that's why I'm really appreciative that we're kind of taking some time to, to really lay this all out because it's tremendously important. And for me, the reason I'm taking this little tangent here to explain you know, when we read about the ancient world, when and I know we're going to get to this towards the end of the conversation. So again, just yeah. a small tangent. But when we read about the, en the okay. ancient world and all these amazing things that humans describe from our ancient past, you know, different beings that can do amazing things. You know, when I read that, I thought, well, maybe the physics was different back then. And clearly, as we're kind of mm -hmm. learning... Yeah, it seems like if you go far enough, far enough back, maybe what you would consider, you know, a thir third dimensional reality conform to different physics than we're used to at this rate of decay that we're in right now. The speed of light decay, the rate of decay has, uh, you know, whatever its ratio is now it does not allow for things like flying or instantaneous transportation, maybe things that were feasible when the speed of light mm -hmm. was faster or, or, or we were closer to the heart of God. Uh, you know, I just, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing concept. And I think it, it kind of like nestles itself into you because it's so true. I don't mean to, 
you know, express a bias here so soon into the conversation. <laughs> okay. But but yeah, it's to me what you just said about light decaying over time. I mean, it, if we start to see the world in that way, uh, that it's a living time, the universe itself is a living being, it puts a different perspective on like what's possible and what's impossible, right? You know, I totally agree. I mean, yeah, you, you nailed it again. I mean, this, the implications, I mean, again, I'm still grasping this. I mean, this is something that, I mean, I learned about it in, in, in basically in, in the nineties. Um, I heard that, you know, when I heard about the, the, the paper that that's Norman and Cerefield put out, but I didn't really think much about the, the implications on a big pictures scale. But as I've been researching it the past few months, I mean, my mind keeps getting blown because it, again, the implications are staggering. So, so a couple of things before we get to the, to the ancient times, as, as I said, this, when this paper was published, of course, it was, you know, it was rejected immediately initially by scientists, you know, scientists, despite their, the impression they like to give that they're just objective people looking for truth. You no, know, they, they're a community and they have their biases and scientists are basically dragged kicking and screaming to every new discovery. They're, they're not, you know, always looking for, Hey, that's new. Let's, let's learn more about it. They're like, Nope, you, whatever you're saying is going against our doctrine. You know, we're going to reject you. But eventually they had no choice but to accept it because all of their math, Setterfield and Norman's math worked out. But now this should have been one of the biggest stories of in the last you know century, because, again, if, if the speed of light is not a constant, then we have to rewrite all of our physics books. But that didn't happen. You can find it, but you have to do some deep Google research to really get into it. I mean, again, your listeners can right now Google speed of light slowing down. You know, some articles will come up. You won't you won't find Setterfield and Norman's paper. I think it's mostly because they were also religious guys, and I think that that didn't really sit well with the you know with the with secular science. But in any case, it's not. It's, I think it's being in, intentionally suppressed. I think it's being shadow banned. I guess you could say to use a term that we're all familiar with, and and that it's it's out there, but no one's paying attention to it because again, the implications are not only huge for the understanding of people like us who are seeking truth, but they also will shatter a lot of the secular worldview. That is the norm in science right now. We'll talk about that in a bit. But as you said, Mark, if you can, you can regress it back because if the speed of light is slowing down, that means, you know, next year in 2026, it'll be slower than it was, you know, slightly slower than it was this year. But that also means that last year, 2024, it was a bit faster. And you go back hundred years, it was even faster. But again, minute, discrete amounts. However, as I said, as as Norman and Setterfield revealed, as you, the further you go in time, the more dramatic the speed is. And so it's been postulated by some scientists who have studied this. And again, with the assumption that the rate of, of, of decay and acceleration of light has been you know steady and constant, which may or may not be. In fact, I'm, I, I tend to think it's it's kind of slowed down in chunks. But let's say it has been constant and 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 in a smooth curve if you were to go back 2000 years ago you know to the first century the speed of light would have been 100 times faster than it is today if you go back even further to about 8000 years which is generally what we consider you know the ancient times you know the times of of, of noah the time of babel sumeria some of the some of the ancient civilizations maybe even atlantis or which maybe even even further back again, and we'll talk about time a little bit because how we measure time completely changes if the speed of light is not constant. But if you were to go back eight thousand years, the speed of light would have been about ten thousand times faster than it is today. That completely changes 
physics, our physical world, the physical world back then in the ancient times would have looked much, much different than ours. And, and it's hard to say because we don't have any experience with it, but you have to feel that, you know, colors would have been brighter, more vivid. You know, our material world would have been denser because again, the speed of light dictates the speed at which the electron travels around the nucleus. And that electromagnetic field is what gives us the illusion of solidity, even though, as I said, the atom is mostly empty space. The reason that, you know, our world feels solid, the reason that my hand doesn't pass through the table I'm in front of, or I don't, you know, pass through my seat that I'm sitting in is because of the negative charge of the trillions of, of, of electrons that are the trillions of atoms that make up our, our material world, uh, it, become, it gives us you know, that illusion of solidity because you know you have ne- two negative electric fields pressing against each other, so we can't pass through it. So if the speed of light was that much faster, it would have made that that electro- electromagnetic field that much stronger. So we would have human beings probably would have been bigger, stronger, more 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 dense. By dense, I, I mean you know, more more solid, more substantial. Uh, light would have been much brighter. Fire would have been hotter. The earth, who, who knows what the earth would have been like. It's again, you'd have to use your imagination and I'm not a physicist, but if, you know, if, if those of you who have that kind of physics background, just imagine what the world would have been like. And, but what I think is even more interesting is what our minds would have been like, how our brains would have operated differently back then, because in our thoughts, our consciousness is, is electric. You know, you, you go to a hospital, they hook you up to the EKG to measure your brain waves. They're measuring the electric output in your brain. So when we have a thought, there's a, literally a spark going between our, our neural cells, our neurons, the, the dendrites. And that's how we process thoughts. So the, the faster you process thoughts, the more intelligent you are, right? I mean, we even use the term today for someone who's not intelligent. We say they're slow. You know, it takes them a long time to process the thought. But if you process your thoughts faster, then you're smarter. These people would have been processing their thoughts thousands of times faster than us. They would have been much, much smarter than we are. And I think their perceptions would have been much sharper. They might have been able to see into other dimensions. If they were, if their brains were moving that quickly, maybe they could see into the spiritual realm. Maybe the reason why we, we hear about the ancients worshiping gods was not because, you know, they were so primitive that they, you know, they relied on, they they blamed everything on the gods or they attributed things to the gods. Maybe they believed in the gods, the spiritual realm, because they could see it, because they could interact with them, because they could physically interact with them. We talked a few minutes ago about how, you know, the spiritual realm is the real solid realm and our realm is, you know, the ethereal fluffy realm that we normally attribute to the spiritual world. If that's true, then we were, you know, more solid and more dense physically back then, then maybe that means that we could have had more physical interactions with our, our solid brethren in the spiritual realm. And that really explains so much of what we read about in these ancient books about miraculous things happening, uh, as you said, people traveling differently, maybe people communicating telepathically. Could you imagine if our thoughts are that were, were that much faster? Maybe we could read each other's minds and we oh. weren't using our voices so much as we were just able to you know, think what we think our thoughts and the person next to us would understand them. I mean, it, just, it, 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 it boggles the mind. 
And it's conceivable even to suggest that the physical uh, container of the mind would conform to maybe different, you know, rules and circumstances, right? If everything is moving at this faster speed of light, then maybe, you know, our, our physical anatomy, as you suggested, would have conformed to that rather than, you know, how we uh, are now, which I wonder if, yeah, it's something like uh, a, a bit of a um, optical illusion or, or maybe a sensual illusion. You know, all five of our senses rather than just our eyes are, are sort of creating this illusion of materiality that maybe once was more solid, but as we've moved out of solidity into a more ethereal realm, our sensual illusion, you know, sort of this thing that keeps us kind of grounded has to more and more kind of trick us into like feeling like everything's solid. Meanwhile, our science is showing us what you described with the electron and how we are really in a holographic universe. And it's, it's, it's almost like it's underneath this thin layer that's just, just out of reach, just quite out of reach. Maybe it's not that it's out of reach. Maybe we're still, I don't know, conforming to the uh, preset, uh, uh, you know, what's the right word? The preset (laughs) uh, attributes from that denser time, right? And as we as we evolve into the liquidity or the lucidity, the ethereality of this higher rate of frequency or this higher rate of speed, it takes longer for those attributes that we've kind of evolved with mentally, uh, intellectually, to, to conform to the, the new observation. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I mean, another thing to keep in mind, you know, we talked about the ancient realm, we can get back to that. But I mean, just how, let's look at how that would affect, you know, us in, in our current time. If things are slower, I mean, if things have slowed down dramatically, then you could say, you know, our minds are slower. But, you know, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we don't experience the spiritual realm the way that the ancients did, because not because the spiritual realm went away. I think we're immersed in it. I, I don't think that there's like, heaven is like someplace above us in outer space. You know, I think it's all around us. We just can't experience it because it's, it's just beyond our ability to, to perceive right now. But with the other implication is as we lose this, the, the speed of light, as we, excuse me, yeah, lose that speed, we're also losing the higher vibrational stuff because, you know, the light and, and, and vibration is there. They go hand in hand. So as the speed of light slows down, I think the vibrations are getting lower. And, you know, I don't think I have to convince anyone listening that the world seems to be getting lower and lower on the vibrational scale. The things that are happening around us are just a lot of low vibrational stuff. And, you know, as a Christian growing up, I wasn't really into it. It seemed like way too woo-woo for me. You know, it sounds all kind of paganistic, but the more I study it, the more I am coming to understand that things like like, you know, vibration and manifestation and things like that, actually, not only do the, are they compatible with my beliefs, but they explain a lot of what I believe. You know, these entities that, you know, the, the evil entities that are separated from God, the fallen angels, the fallen Elohim, they're of a lower vibration because they're no longer connected to the source, to the light of God. And that's, 
really from so from a purely scientific standpoint, I think this all makes sense because of entropy. You talked before about the entropy laws. The second law of thermodynamics simply states that over time, you know, things lose energy. We go from a state of high energy to low energy. That just happens. You know, you light a match and match burns out. That's that's just natural law. But also from a spiritual standpoint, I think you can map the slowing down of the speed of light to the distance that man is from God. The further you are from God, if God is a source of light, if he's 100% light, the further you are from him, obviously the slower light's going to be or the less effective you're going to be by by light and by the high vibrational aspects of it. And I, I think we can, you know, if you look at the biblical narrative, you can see that we go, we start with, you know, with, the, with the story of Adam and Eve. They were obviously the most connected to God. They were, they were eternal. They were immortal. But then they fall away. And I think that's a, a, when light slows down dramatically at that point. And they go from being immortal to living long lives. And the, the antediluvian or pre-flood era, people lived to be, you know, between seven and 900 years old. Then you have, you know, the incident with the, the fallen angels and the Nephilim which you know, resulted in the, the flood, I think that's another dramatic slowing down of the speed of light because then you had people going from living hundreds of years to only living about a hundred years. And the the story, the biblical narrative, especially in the Old Testament, you can just see God becoming, getting further and further away from human beings as human beings began to become more and more rebellious. So I, I think that that's the spiritual explanation for the speed of light slowing down. And of course, the physical explanation is is are the entropy laws right right and i i feel like i i was a little bit mixed up in my previous statement because it's sounds like it's it's that things are speeding i was kind of suggesting that things are speeding up when in fact they're they're slowing down but i wonder if it's well, not I, a sort of pendulum you know, I, think certain th- I think certain things are ex- I, I think certain things are accelerating well, and and that's kind of that's kind of what I'm curious about is like wh- where's the where's the yang to this yin we're describing, right? Because there there are I mean maybe I'm just a Libra and I'm trying to balance things here, but uh, <laughs> but there there is this instinct I have to to kind of um, I don't know that there's this like there's got to be some sort of parallel like as we solidify in one sense another part of us becomes you know vibrating at at a higher speed or as we solidify we create these devices out of solid matter that are now computing thoughts at that speed that we might have been capable of without the external technology right i mean we've created uh, in the ancient past these very dense huge long-lasting stone constructions that are still here with us and, and nowadays we create these kind of like um uh fragile and precarious technologies that i mean they kind of reflect our our lives in that sense like the entropy it, it we still can we're reaching for that you know speed that we know is possible um but we're we're limited because of the the entropy that is going on i mean am i making any sense here ed <laughs> yeah i i think i think i'm grabbing onto what you're saying i i would just say that and here this is kind of an ironic almost oxymoronic way to say it but the the rate at which things are slowing down is speeding up <laughs> in right. other words where the the the, the I, I we're slowing down at an accelerated rate 
And what I mean by that is like, you know, say, say you're in a car, you're going hundred miles per hour and you slam on your brakes and you go from hundred miles per hour to like, you know, five miles per hour in a couple seconds. So that's a quick deceleration. So I think the rate at which we are decelerating or, or the speed of light is decelerating is happening at a quicker pace. And I think as that happens, the, if you want to talk about the yin and yang, I think what's happening is that there is an area that's becoming more powerful. And I think the power, the, more, the entities that are becoming more powerful are the ones that thrive in this low vibrational environment. So they're becoming more powerful. Why? Because as the light of, as the light of God is withdrawn, well, there's something comes in the field of the vacuum. And I think that vacuum is being filled by low vibrational evil entities and the people who uh, give their allegiance to them. So what I'm saying is that the bad guys seem to be getting stronger because as light goes away, darkness grows. I mean, because if you look at it, darkness is not a thing in and of itself. The darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is a measurement of the lack of light. I mean, you can prove this very easily. I mean, you go into, you can go to a, a room that's completely dark and you can bring light into it. You know, you can bring in a candle, a flashlight, you know, a, a light bulb, but you can't do the opposite. You can't go into a room that's completely lit and bring in darkness. That's not how it works. Darkness is, again, the measurement of a lack of light. So if light is decreasing, if light is going away, then that just means that by definition, darkness is going to be increasing at an accelerated rate. And, you know, you'd, all you have to do is, is turn on the TV or read a newspaper. Well, not papers anymore, but read the news to see that it, that darkness appears to be accelerating, which means the power that the darkness has is accelerating. Yeah. Yeah, it's it for me, I, I feel like it comes back for some reason to this pendulum or this hourglass sort of analogy where as it, you know, sort of becomes overloaded to one end of the spectrum, there's like a force that reflects it back in the opposite direction. And I wonder if, yes. you know, to kind of take it back to the macro, macro, macro scale and this notion that mm -hmm. we are all a part of one consistent intelligence that is God, this, this consciousness force that... Uh, you know, bifurcated itself into an infinite amount of parts so that it could experience itself, expand through whatever this universe is. I, I like to think of it maybe as like, you know, one giant eyeball that's just growing and growing and growing <laughs> large enough to finally see that the space that it's in is a mirror and it now it sees itself. And when it sees itself, it's like, boom, there's another universe that's created. Like, yeah. I so, don't know. Maybe you know, I, I, I'm, I'm tracking what you're saying. And we, you know, there are different ways to look at it. Obviously I'm looking at it through the lens of Christianity, mm -hmm. but that Christian list basically says the same thing. There's, there's going to be a pendulum swing. We, so, uh, you know, according to biblical philosophy, Christian philosophy, the, you know, the deceleration is going to continue until, you know, it's, it's done there. That, that's what we have, you know, the apocalypse, a book of revelation, which, you know, I've been, doing a deep dive on in my on my youtube channel but at the end it's not like you know everything goes away and okay the bad guys win no at the end of the book you know the good guys win it finally gets to the point where basically man makes his final choice and you can in that's what the whole mark of the beast thing is about it's basically god saying look this is gone this has gone as far as it can you know i'm as far away from you as i can possibly be you guys need to make a choice 
either, you know, either 100% for me or you run 100% for the evil Elohim's, you know, Satan, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him. And once they make that choice, then, then God, who is the nature of God is always a completely right and just. Why do I say that? Because the, whatever the, whatever calls our universe is outside of the universe. You know, the, the laws of cause and effect state that for every effect, there's a cause and the cause is independent of and superior to the effect. So if our universe is an effect, then whatever caused it has to be outside of the universe and greater than the universe. So it's not physical. So the only things we know that are not physical, but, but can create are is information is principles. And the only two print and the, the only two basic, well, we get down to the basic principles have to be qualitative and quantitative. And that's righteous and just right. Right means, you know, you're right. You're not wrong. And justice means that, you know, everything equals out. Justice is, is quantitative. Right is qualitative. So if you were to break down God or what we call the, the first cause of the universe, it has to be always a completely right and just. The point of me saying that is that because God, the creator is always just, eventually he has to equal out justice. All the evil that has happened has to be equaled out. And when this, and, and that's what, again, what happens at the end of the, the book of Revelation it is, you know, the, the final four chapters, everything's equaled out. And then he starts over again. So every, it, justice has been equaled out. Now we're going to start again. And the pendulum swings the other way, going back to what you were saying, Mark. Now we're going to get back and got the, the book of Revelation ends with, you know, basically a recreation of Eden, where God says, now you're, I'm going to recreate this world. I'm going to be in this world. I'm going to be that source of light. And though those who chose me will be with me. So then now you have the pendulum swinging back towards um, you know, towards the light. And if you, but if you just want to look at it from a naturalistic standpoint, just from pure science, pure secular science, what is, they say at the end of the universe is eventually going to end. And we had the, the so-called big bang. Then there's going to be the big crunch where everything, you know, the universe expands, then it contracts all the way back down to a singularity. And then boom, it happens again. Um, all the energy is concentrated and then it explodes again. So however you want to look at it, whatever your worldview there is that pendulum swinging back and forth. It's going to go from ultimate light back down to complete darkness, then back to ultimate light. Because again, physics, first law of thermodynamics, you can't create or destroy energy. Right. So the light hasn't gone away. It's just dissipated and then it's going to come back. Right. Right. I can't help but visualize like a, almost like a, an orb moving in like a corkscrew pattern. And as it goes along this axis, there's a, there's a, you know, a pole on each side of its sort of rotation and it's being, you know, manipulated or influenced as it rotates in this trajectory. And if you're on the orb, you know, it just kind of feels like, oh, we're going back and forth, back and forth, back and uh -huh. forth. But you have to step out of it, out of that position to see, oh no, there's a, there's an upward trajectory here, maybe even a, a cyclical trajectory. I mean, I, I, can pull up some like visuals on computer generators that'll show you like all sorts of infinite moving shapes that, you know, spiral into who knows how many, you know, variations. So maybe, maybe we're, we're living in some giant, you know, visual sacred geometry, like display on the highest, highest level of dimensions. And the same way, you know, all of our nuclei inside of our body are fighting their little battles and on their mission and to network and, and grow and, and then die and contribute to the whole that is your organism. 
we ourselves as as Mark and Ed having this conversation, everybody listening and every organism around us is that, you know, um, corresponding sort of piece of anatomy within the whole universe. Yeah, it's funny when you look at it from, you know, you're looking at it from, from from the macro level, but then you get down to the micro, you look at our cells, you know, what do our cells do? They, they produce life for us, but then they, then they die. Our cells die, but then, but they also reproduce and you get a new cell. So you, you have that, that, you know, life and death, uh, cycle happening, you know, on, on, on a micro scale. And I think we're talking about it happening on a, on a macro scale with, you know, our entire universe that was, you know, with, with the light slowing and then speeding up. So I think, and I, I just think that understanding this is so vital because it explains so much. I mean, going back to the ancient world, you know, how did they, how were they able to build these megaliths that we can't even explain today? Well, they were smarter. Maybe they were stronger. Maybe they can move the stones physically, or maybe they were so in tune with the vibrations that they could change the, you know, use their abilities to change the, the vibrational level of these three ton stones, make them weigh, you know, a, a couple pounds and they can move them around that way. Well, and that, that's kind of the thought that came to mind as you were describing the the strengthened electrical barriers and how, you know, just on that micro scale, you'd if you understand that those relationships were stronger than by, you know, correspondence, the, the entire being would be stronger and these interactions and relationships would have a different physical, uh, you know, uh, nature to their it, interactions right so like things like in incredibly dense stones which don't change much over time you know maybe we've changed so much that the stones are just heavier to us now not saying that we were all super strong back then but as you're kind of saying like what if the physics were different and these stones could just kind of be vibrated into a lighter state or or you know into a levitation i mean who knows sound and and frequency certainly shows that Things like levitation are, are possible under the right cymatic conditions, but uh, but yeah, who, I mean, if if our universe conformed to different parameters back then, then yeah, I, I would imagine that those kind of things it would be hard for us to even wrap our head around it, just from this our understanding of how things work in this current time frame. Yeah, you know, one of the things I found fascinating, you know, with, with this whole speed of light thing in mind, was when you look at, you know, you go to the beginning of the book of Genesis, you know, so you had, you know, Adam and Eve, then they, they ate the forbidden fruit. And one thing that always puzzled me was it said, you know, they ate the fruit and suddenly they knew they were naked. I'm like, wait a minute. They never looked at each other before they had the fruit. That doesn't make sense, but okay. You know, it's Bible says it. I am a Christian. I'll believe it. But one person who's, who's also uh, another uh, Christian person was talking through this and he understood the whole speed of light thing. He said, look, what if these, what if Adam and Eve were clothed in light? I mean, if they were clothed in light and the light of God, and once they disobeyed him and they deliberately stepped out of it, then they would have no longer been covered. Because when they said they were, they saw they were naked. I mean, in, in the original language, it says they saw that they were, they discovered they were uncovered. So, which means they were covered before, I believe covered in light. And then they deliberately, you know, rebelled against God and they were no longer covered. They, wait a minute, we're not covered anymore. We're exposed. And they hid because they saw their mortality for the first time. And it scared the hell out of them because before that they were immortal. 
So that just kind of coincides with my my belief that the the, the speed of light has been decreasing in in dramatic shifts, and I think that was one of the first ones. But you know, you go before that. Um, I'm sorry, not before that, but you go immediately after that to, as I was saying before, where people may have been communicating telepathically and uh, someone, uh, I can't take credit for it, actually it was someone who was on the, the tinfoil hat show. Um, a lady was saying that she believed that what happened at you know the Tower of Babel when the languages were confused, that what God did, he took away, he, I guess, decreased the speed of light to the point where we can no longer communicate telepathically. We had to communicate with our voices and that's what that's what it meant that we were because if you look at the actual language it says that people at the time of the tower of babel were of one mind and we kind of look at that as being colloquial it means we know they had a single purpose no what if that was being literal what if when it said they were of one mind it really meant that they were all communicating together with their minds and then God said, well, this isn't working out because when these people communicate together with one mind, they, you know, they're going to, you know, make this, this tower, which was essentially a, a, a ziggurat or a pyramid that, which, with, which, with which they were intending to invade the spiritual realm. That's, that was the whole point of the Tower of Babel. And God said, no way, I'm taking away this ability for you guys to communicate telepathically. Now you've got to use your voices, which are completely inefficient. Um, you know, cause you, you know, imagine Mark, I don't know if you've ever worked in construction, but if when you have a bunch of people building a house, could you imagine how much more efficient or anything, or if you're working on a computer program and there's a bunch of people doing it, imagine how efficient it would be is if instead of having to talk through things, you could just, you know, project your thoughts and ideas into someone else's head. You could, we could do anything. We'd be so much more advanced than we are now because you know, our vocal communication is so inefficient. Well, yeah, or it would be more like, you know, everybody's intelligence would contribute equally to what the best design for a house would be. And then they would all just sort of, uh, you know, decide on what needs to be done first and in what order. And yeah, it would be like, you know, it would be the way, you know, seemingly bees work together to create these wonderful uh, hives, right? Like they don't stand around and and buzz, buzz, buzz to each other. They just intuitively do it. Yeah, and I, I like I, said, I know you're really into Atlantis, which you know I don't know is nowhere near as much about as you do. But I mean, how do you think? Let me ask you a question. How do you think that this idea would affect what you know about that civilization? Well, it's interesting because uh, you know going back to this book, the secret history of the world, like when it comes to Atlantis and uh, and the ancient civilizations, I wonder if the timeline is skewed in the sense that you know maybe there were like the the information that the bible and all of the these experiences these are maybe from that time period and have been preserved over uh, you know through this cataclysm that we all remember as the flood like i don't know that it's necessarily two separate um you know, events, I wonder if it's just like two versions of a a similar reality that have been remembered differently over time. Um, Possible. But I I also am like, you know, going back to the pendulum swing thing, like what if, yeah, what if Atlantis and all that was what the Bible describes as this, you know, advanced group of people that he had to, you know, alter their world you know manage them differently i'm I'm not sure when it comes to atlantis you know 
I, I appreciate the the compliment of saying I have some insight, but really my focus has always been on the stone structures and like what's here in America that God, could okay. be connected to that stuff. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's all again going back to like what I said earlier, the secret history of the world by Mark Booth. Like it it talks about Genesis. So you know when I read that, I've never like it's. You know, it's interesting, you know, I, I am Christian in that way that like Genesis means a lot to me. And I think mm-hmm. it's an important, important part of a human, the human story that needs to be, I don't know if it's decoded or if it understood from a certain perspective, you know, people debate whether or not there are <laughs> coded aspects to the Bible. But right. I, I certainly think there, there are, maybe it's just a different way of, of, explaining it to say it's coded might not be the most correct way but but yeah when it comes to this overall the overall conversation like i keep being reminded of this book so i grabbed it off the shelf while you were talking and i have Mm -hmm. chapter three open and i just want to read one part of it and you know just because this idea that i read in chapter three has really stuck with me and has kind of opened up the avenue for ideas like Atlantis and and the idea that maybe the parameters of the dimension people were living in was different in ancient times, which is kind of what we're, we're talking about here with the speed of light. So he says, in the beginning, three precipitated out of the void matter that was finer and more subtle than light. Then came an exceptionally fine gas. If a human eye had been looking at the dawn of history, it would have seen a vast cosmic mist. This ghast or mist was the mother of all living, carrying everything needed for the creation of life. The mother goddess, as she was sometimes also called, will metamorphose in the course of this history and assume many different forms, many different names. But in the beginning, the earth was without form and void. Now for history's first great reversal of fortune. The Bible narrative continues. Darkness was upon the face of the earth. According to the biblical commentators working within the esoteric tradition, this is the Bible's way of saying that the mother goddess was attacked by a dry, searing wind that almost extinguished the potential for life altogether. Again, to a human eye, it would have looked as if the gently interweaving mists that had first emanated from the mind of God were suddenly overtaken by a second emanation. There was a violent storm like some rare and spectacular phenomena observed by astronomers, the death of a star perhaps, except that here in the beginning, it would have been on a completely overwhelming scale that filled the entire universe. So this is what it would have looked like to a physical eye, but to the imagination, this great cloud of mist and the terrible storm that attacked it can be seen to cloak two gigantic phantoms. Before we try to make sense of this ancient history of the cosmos or understand why so many brilliant people have believed in it, we must try to absorb it in the form it would have been presented in ancient times as a series of imaginative images. It is important to let these images work on our imagination. I should skip this part, uh, Okay, but I, it was important to read that part because it is kind of giving us the the background here any comments on that before i proceed well it's it's interesting that as i think you said before that we have so many different 
ways of looking at some of the same events because I could actually see a correlation between that and the the creation narrative in the first chapter of Genesis, where instead of you know mother goddess, we're talking in 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 the biblical terms, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And it does it says you know we have that first statement in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's you know period. That's like an overview statement. He said, but the earth became you know the, the formless and void and, and desolate. So it, he didn't create it that way, but something happened. And what you just read is like some kind of searing wind. But if you read you know, in the Hebrew, it says when it says darkness was on the face of the deep. That word deep is the word tehom. That word tehom, it, you know, that word tehom is, 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 I'm sorry, I said Greek, excuse me. I mean, in Hebrew, the word, the word deep is tehom. In Ugaritic, the word tehom is, is the word tiamat. Tiamat was a seven-headed dragon in Ugaritic text. So if you're correlating between, you know, those two ancient languages, it was saying that, that darkness was on the face of this gigantic dragon. It means it, was, it had been defeated and it was being judged. So the implication is that, in primordial time, before you know the creation of man, even the recreation of the earth as we know it, heaven and earth was created. Then there was some type of rebellion by some type by a dragon, some type of Elohim that looked like a dragon, and it was judged. And then, and after that, then God recreated the the world. That's why when he tell he tells Adam and Eve, you know, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That, that suffix re means that at one time the earth was plenished and he said replenish it. So that's what a lot of biblical commentators call the gap theory that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it was this rebellion that devastated the world and took light out. And then God said, what was his first thing he said? Let there be light again. So this gets back to the pendulum we were talking about. He has an initial creation, then darkness or through this dragon, which is actually called the chaos dragon. Um, because it says darkness is on the face of the deep and the spirit of, of God, the Holy Spirit moved over the face of the waters the, for the word waters in Hebrew is Mayim, which means chaos. So God created an orderly universe. There was a rebellion that resulted in darkness and chaos. God defeated and judged this entity that caused a chaos. Then he said again, let there be light, let light come back. And then he recreates the earth and then he creates, you know, humanity. So I just, I, you, that's why I believe in the, in the global truth of the creation narrative, because even when you get to other, you know, non-biblical narratives, there's so much similarity that there has to be truth there. Well, and this is what I'm so grateful to have you here and to have this book in my hand. I mean, we, I didn't plan this at all, but as we were kind of talking, I'm like, you know what? It's about time I pull this book out. And, you know, I, I had to skip 20 pages to get to the part that I was actually thinking about. But I'm glad that I read the beginning of this chapter just to kind of give you the opportunity to, to make that comment. And also say, like, you know, just for people to understand who Mark Booth is, he's not he's not coming from it from an entirely occult perspective. His uh his book actually incorporates a lot of the Christian worldview, and especially Genesis, and, mm -hmm. and kind of shows how other cultures have a similar syncretic view, which is what you kind of just express is like, yeah, all of this is, is true because it's, it's 
there, it's humans talking about the same event. It's just been remembered in different languages and in different ways. And maybe the yeah. the Bible's version is is probably the the most accurate, and that's why it's stuck with so many people. Right, but, but you have, but as you said, you have all these different. I mean, I go back to Babel when when people when languages were divided. Well, then you let's say you know, I, biblically according to the Bible, they were divided into seventy nations. So you have seventy groups. So you're going to have seventy different versions of the same story. And over right. time, you know, you played the old telephone game. Over time, you know, they're going to start evolving into you know distinct, you know, narratives that are going to have you know some you know again pretty distinct differences, but the, thematically, I think they're always going to be the same. Well, and, and that's exactly what Mark Booth kind of describes as, as you put it, the dragon, he, he kind of calls it Saturn and how the sun god arrives and, right. and rescues Mother Earth from Saturn and then repopulates it or replenishes it. And when it comes back to the part that I was thinking of and I wanted to, to bring up because it's more relevant to our, our initial point that we kind of went down this tangent on, it says, returning to the creation narrative and the great and immet in the great imaginative images encoded within Genesis, we see that Adam's, and by the way, imaginative does not mean not real. It just means like imagination in the sense of like, that is our primordial way of consciousness. Like before there was, uh, according to this author, before there was language, people thought with like images and, and stories in, in more of an imaginative form. So he's not saying that Genesis is, is just a product of somebody's imagination. Um, so encoded within Genesis, we see that Adam's body had at first been very soft and amorphous, his skin almost as delicate as the skin of a pond. But now it began to harden as the great Christian mystic and Rosicrucian philosopher Jacob Bohem wrote in Mysterium Magnum, his commentary on Genesis, what would in time become bone now hardened and became something closer to wax. Warmed by the sun, his green limbs also began to come tinged with pink. As Adam solidified, he also began to divide into two. That is to say that he was a hermaphrodite who reproduced in an asexual way. When pressed, any scholar of biblical Hebrew will have to admit that Genesis 1.27, the passage usually translated male and female, he created them, properly reads male and female, they created him, singular. So it was by this plant-like method of re reproduction that Eve was born out of Adam's body, molded from the waxy cartilage which served Adam for bone. The progeny of Adam and Eve also reproduced asexually, procreating by using sounds in a way that was analogous to the creative activity of the word. This episode in history is related to Freemasonic lore pertaining to the word that has been lost, the esoteric belief that when in the far future this word is rediscovered, it will be possible to impregnate using only the sound of the human voice. Adam, Eve, and their progeny did not die, but now and then they merely went to sleep in order to refresh themselves. But the lotus-eating state of the Garden of Eden could not go on forever. If it had done, humanity would have never evolved beyond the vegetable stage. It was always intended that the sun god would separate from the earth for a while. So maybe not explicitly, you know, we were actual plants right. with leaves growing out of our head. But this uh -huh. author's kind of using the metaphor of vegetable to animal to, you know, beyond as a as a, a vehicle to understand how uh, kind of like what we're talking about with the speed of life, how the parameters of our universe have, have evolved as 
you know, God's creation has, has grown. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, I've heard that, uh, that theory before, you know, about, you know, they basically being, you know, more in a, in a vegetative state and not, not, you know, not in the medical sense, but, you know, them, uh, you know, Adam and Eve are, are just, you know, Adam being a, a more, more plant-like. I've heard that, you know, I, I it's interesting. It's, it, you know, it's kind of fanciful in my opinion. I, you know, it's, if you want to look at it as a, a big picture metaphor, so be it. I mean, obviously I, I'm not going to, I don't subscribe to it, but it's interesting. Well, as I mean, a, I, as a lens yeah. to understand the kind of uh, the overall point we were making about the speed of light, I mean, uh, yeah. tell me, you know, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, if we talk about it, if you mean it from a standpoint of, you know, they've, they've gone through a transition in the way the, our makeup. Right. Yeah. I can't argue against that. Well, and I, mean, I think that's kind of the, the thing with this book is like, take the plant metaphor for what it's worth or leave right. it. Right. I think really the idea is that we as human beings are not as anatomically solid as Darwinian logic will, wants us to think as these people okay. who, yeah, who believe you. in the big bang want us to think, right. That like, and, and it's funny because, you know, science and religion both say the same thing. And I wanted to get around to asking you about this as well, okay. which is, you know, out of nothingness came something. And I, I, I wonder if you agree with that, because it, it, it does seem like, you know, if nothing, you know, this idea of nothingness has a certain implication from a scientific view and it might be more nuanced or sophisticated from a, a, I guess, what we could understand as a more religious or spiritual view of, of nothingness. Because when I when I understand or when I hear from religious people about this topic, you know, it doesn't sound to me like they believe that God is nothingness. It doesn't sound to me like they believe that God um, created something out of nothing. I mean, yes, in a sense, but you were you were saying just before how there was something before this creation. I mean, am I right? No, no, you, no. Here's here's how I put it. When you say nothing, I mean, I I believe that that there was no physical realm, that the physical realm was was created right. out of non physical, the spiritual realm. And I, I don't think I, I emphasized this earlier enough when I said what I was talking about what the what the spiritual realm is. The spiritual realm is consciousness, right. That is what it is. Remember, and, and I'm not just, you know, I'm not being woo-woo about this. I mean, even from the physical standpoint, that it, it can still be light and energy because, as I said, our thoughts are energy. Our thoughts are electric. You can't deny that. That's scientifically provable with an EKG. So the our consciousness is energy and it is light. So, so when you say he created something out of nothing, I would say he created something out of consciousness. So, mm. and what he created was was vibrations. He did it through vibrations. It says in, in Genesis that he spoke this physical world into existence. What he, and technically, if you want to be really technical about it, he sang it into existence because the first chapter of Genesis is a poem, which is meant to be sung. If, if you look at it in certain Bibles, it's actually, you know, rendered into stanzas. Wow. You know, they, you know, in he, God said, let there be light. The light was good. Evening and morning was the first day. Then second day, third. So it's in stanzas. So God was actually singing this world into existence. And that's what words, songs are. They're vibrations. Wow. And so our physical, and as I said at the very beginning, our, what we call our physical world is a, basically a, a hologram made of sound and light. 
So by singing it, because again, when um, when we get, we talked about the, you know, the whole, the chaos dragon thing, it said that it says, I think in, in verse two or three, that the spirit of God, <clears throat> excuse me, the Holy Spirit moved over the face of the water, over the face of the chaos moved. He means he was vibrating. The spirit of God started vibrating over the chaos that was, that was the result of this, this rebellion. And then he started talking. Then he said, or saying, let there be you know, light, animals, mountains, trees, so forth and so on. So that's what our physical world is made out of. It's made out of the the thoughts and the words, literally, of God, of our creator. Wow. Wow. I mean, that just rings true. I mean, not to sing, you know, make a pun there or anything, but that just, <laughs> it really does. Like, it, it feels intuitively true and you know, whether that's because our DNA is designed by the creator, you know, I think that's probably why these things are, are, you know, vibration in nature, because like our DNA is literally, it was sung into existence, you know, I mean, I think that's, when you see the world through that lens, it makes a lot more sense. And, you know, although science has done a lot to kind of turn people away from God, and it's very dogmatic at this point in history, I think the greater understanding of science or a greater understanding of science will eventually lead to all-encompassing spiritual understanding as well, because, you know, I think God intends us to know his creation to the fullest. I I couldn't agree more. And you talk about DNA. DNA is information. I mean, that's really what it's a blueprint is literally a blueprint in its information. Where does information come from? Well, it doesn't come out of nothing. It has to come from intelligence. You don't get information randomly. You know, information right. has to have is, is a result of intention and intention is a result of, of intelligence and intelligence is a result of consciousness. Well, and what's so amazing is it almost feels like there's a level of I hate to call it experimentation. I think exploration is a much more appropriate term, but it is in a sense, a bit of an experiment. Um, And like there's some freedom or agency rather on our part to contribute to this poem. That is the information that's growing around us. I mean, one of the big misconceptions that science has given us through Darwinian logic is that, life is the result of conflict and competition and in fact leading biologists have proved that wrong and life actually has one of um quotes from biologist lynn margulis is life did not take over the globe by combat but by networking and it's it's evolution based on cooperation interaction and mutual dependence among organisms so if that's happening on in the lower order of things with insects flowers birds and so on i mean that to me really uh, just validates this idea that we live in a consciously organized world where consciousness oh, yeah. is you know uh is preeminent yeah that's i mean i think the one of the there are many many arguments against the idea of you know of, of random evolution. I think one of the biggest is the the evidence of order. I mean, you can believe what you want to believe about the world. Obviously, I, I come from the Christian worldview, but I think the one that that is the least plausible, which is then ironically the one ironically the one that's foisted upon us, is the idea of randomness. Mm. 
because you cannot it's it's antithetical it's impossible actually for rent for order to come from randomness it cannot happen it is physically impossible it violates the second law of thermodynamics because you know thermodynamics says that things become less orderly over time they become more chaotic but evolution says the opposite that we go from simple to complex whereas you know the established physical law of thermodynamics says things go from complex to simple and there's so much evidence for orderliness, just like, like you said, in nature, the way flowers bloom, I mean, everything, the way things, everything's on the Fibonacci scale that, I mean, it, this world just reeks of order, which means it reeks of intelligence, which means it reeks of consciousness. No matter what you think that consciousness is, again, I believe it's the God of the Judeo-Christian Bible, but no matter what you think it is, it's there. There is consciousness here because you don't get order without it. You don't get beauty without it. When I, whenever I talk to an, an atheist and he says, you know, prove God, and I'll ask him a question, I'll say, do you believe in beauty? So yeah, I, be, I believe in beauty. What is beauty? Beauty is our recognition of symmetry. Symmetry is order. You cannot have symmetry randomly. You can't. So if you believe in beauty, then you believe in a creator. You just admit it, that you don't believe in randomness. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think this is one of the big disempowering aspects of, of atheism that's been, you know, pushed upon us through the education system and you know, sneering, snide uh, academics, you know, <laughs> just kind of write off anything as superstitious if it doesn't fit their, you know, paradigm that they've created over the past few years. And it, it's yeah, it's not years, maybe centuries rather yeah it's it's become you know especially destructive with ideas about climate you know when when you know when it comes to the earth as this fragile little being that's about to be destroyed by the big bad mean humans like (laughs) you know it's a very short-sighted way of seeing the world you know you can all you need to do is look at like something like the global weather cycles to see that the earth goes through periods of cooling and warming at least yes at least through through our known recorded um you know temperature readings which go back a couple centuries at least uh i think the first like accurate measurements of that kind of thing happened during the middle ages so they've been keeping track of that for a while and can tell like yeah the earth has these periods where there's storms and it gets hotter and it doesn't mean the world's ending but there's exactly there's this group of people maybe going back to atlantis or this pre-diluvian time that have you know kept a hold over the rest of us by maintaining a certain level of ignorance for you know prescribed to others while they hold on to the knowledge you know it comes it comes to the modern world and you have like secret societies the military you know these government ngos and whatnot you know manipulating uh, the media to to coerce events in their favor but you know when it comes to things like religion you know we have a record of this sort of thing and i think that's partly why these atheistic movements have sprung up because they want people to move away from the religions that have kept these traditions going back to ancient times this this wisdom of that 
can guide us away from repeating the same mistakes over and over again. These mistakes that it seems the elite or, or whoever want to willfully, you know, uh, get behind the reins of and, and manage these like cataclysms against us. Uh, you know, the Nephilim come to mind and this idea yeah. that, you know, that there are these fallen angels who, who've rebelled, right? I mean, given what we're talking about, with humanity and you know how we've observed speed of light slowing down i mean how does that fit into our understanding of the nephilim and their role in the, the world because you know one of the big themes that we see today in the conspiracy community is like these nephilim still exist but influence the world from the unseen realm or from beyond the veil or just from maybe a consciousness aspect of their, you know, existence. They, they, they might have a physical body that's not perceivable to us. Right. So, um, yeah, a lot of stuff there. And I, I think just to, to put a, a capsule on what she said before, I'll get to the Nephilim stuff in just a second, is that it, it goes back to what we, we said early on that they, the elites want to keep their stranglehold on that information and the best way to do that is by convincing us that there is no spiritual that everything is secular now we're not special that we're just a result of you know a, a bunch of you know random accidents so if they can convince us of that then we're right. never then people are not going to go anywhere near the spiritual realm and and their power their strongholds of power are secure because no one's ever going to learn that stuff so i think you know the, the atheistic worldview has been, you know, intentionally perpetrated ironically by people who are very, very spiritual because they want to keep their spiritual secrets. But I'm going to the, the Nephilim. So here's the thing. We, originally, the Nephilim, according to, you know, a, the biblical narrative, they they came about in uh, the ancient times, the time of, you know, before Noah, when the fallen Elohim came down and had physical intercourse with women. We talked about this a little earlier. But they were, you know, not to get too graphic, because of the speed of light being faster and, and our bodies being more dense, the women could, well, quite frankly, take it. They could take having intercourse with these with, with these powerful beings. Whereas today, with the with the speed of light being slower and our bodies being much less dense, much more fragile, they probably cannot reproduce in the same way. Okay, so stick a pin in that. Let's talk about what the Nephilim, what happened to the Nephilim. So there were millions, if not even a couple billion of them on earth during the time of the flood. Their physical bodies are destroyed by the flood, but they, their spirits were, according to the book, the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch, which I, I believe should be part of the biblical canon because it's, you, there's things you will not understand about the biblical narrative without the book of Enoch. But in any case, one of the things it says there is that the spirits of the dead Nephilim were, were doomed or cursed to roam the earth without bodies until the time of the final judgment in the book of Revelation. In fact, you will, and, and this is what we call demons. Demons are the spirits, a disembodied spirits of Nephilim. That's why demons are always trying to possess people because they want, they, they want a physical body again. In fact, when the Jesus, one of the things that Jesus was really known for was casting out demons. And in one of the, one of those narratives, he's about to cast out some demons and they say to him, no, what do we, ha what, what have we to do with you? You know, Jesus, son of the most high, have you come to torment us before the time? So they knew their fate. They knew that their fate is at some, at the end of time to be judged. And they knew that Jesus was going to do it, but they also knew that the timing wasn't right. So they said, what are you doing here, Jesus? You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to judge us 
at, at this point. You know, it's too early. So, so they know their fate. As far as where they are now and what in the Nephilim coming back, because I do believe they are going to make a comeback. I think you have two sets. You have the the demons, the ones who are who have no bodies, who are roaming the earth and just you know taking possession of people who allow them to. You cannot be possessed against your will. You, we we have our sovereignty, but if you open the door to that spiritual realm, then you're basically giving a tacit invitation to be possessed, which is why I think people should not mess around in the spiritual stuff if they don't understand it. Then you also have physical Nephilim who are on the earth or under the earth. Some of them in these so-called, what they call them, dumbs, the deep underground bases. There have been stories about them that I don't believe they escaped the flood. I believe the the flood destroyed the, the Nephilim that were on earth, but it also says in Genesis 6 that there were Nephilim on the earth in those days, the days of Noah, and also after that, and we see encounters with them, like uh, David and Goliath, that story, you know, it, Goliath was a Nephilim. You had the promised land was filled with Nephilim. But I believe that they were they were smaller than the giants of old. And I, think, and I think that has a lot to do with the speed of light decreasing and their physical bodies not being as, you know, so they weren't as, as sturdy. So they weren't as tall as the antediluvian, the, the pre-flood giants. But they're still big, you know, eight, 10 feet tall from if you, you know, if you from, from, uh, if you believe the stories, which, you know, why not? I, I have no reason not to believe them. So they're going to make a comeback at the end of time, because at that point is when, excuse me, and this is what I go over in my, my series on the book of Revelation. When you get to the six seals of, of the of Revelation chapter six, I believe that is when we're going to be at the lowest vibrational period in history because that's when God completely withdraws himself from the world. He takes the church out. There's an event called the rapture, very controversial in Christian Christian circles. That's we could spend an hour just on that. But the idea is that believers will be taken out of the earth, meaning that there will be the light of God will be gone and that, and that will allow the evil to have free reign. And that's where, you know, man will have his opportunity to make his final choice. And a part and parcel of that is the return of the Nephilim. And I'll wrap it up here. So I'm getting deep into stuff that would require a whole lot more explanation for it to make sense to people who haven't heard it before. But you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which which come onto the earth when the first four of the six seals of Revelation chapter six are opened. The fourth horseman, the horseman called death, it says he is given authority to kill one fourth of the population of the earth through war, disease, famine, and the beasts of the earth. That term beasts of the earth in Greek is Therion Gigantes. That, those are the Nephilim. The Gigantes is Nephilim in Greek. If you look at the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you take it back, the Greek uh, term in Genesis chapter 6 for Nephilim is, is the Gigantes. They were giants, so they're coming back, and they're going to be the instrument through which you know, this, the fourth horseman, the fourth, the fourth horseman of death will, you know, wreak havoc. So they're going to be, they're going to make a return. And then I'll end it with this. I think we, because when you get to the sixth seal, um, there's a great earthquake and the stars of heaven, which is an idiom for the angels, the Elohim. It says the stars of angel, thus the, the stars of heaven are cast down to the earth forcibly, meaning that the, the, evil Elohim who had occupied the spiritual realm will be physically forced onto the earth. They will be their, you know, their 
Elohim bodies will be taken away from them and they will, they will be given, they will be in material form. We'll be able to interact with them. And I think that's what, um, I think they're going to masquerade as aliens. I think that they know their fate. They know that at some point in the future, they're going to be cast down to earth and they're going to be stripped of, of their light, of their Elohim light. And they, and I think the explanation they're going to give us is that they are alien, our space brothers. And I think that's what Project Bluebeam is, is really all about preparing, having the technology in place to fool the people of Earth into believing that these entities are are aliens or ascended masters or whatever you want to call them. And I know that was a whole lot <laughs> to put into a few minutes, but yeah, if you want to deeper dive into that, I would suggest you go to my my, my revelation series on, on YouTube or on faithbyreason.net. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I'm glad you brought all that up and it definitely is relevant and something that a lot of people are concerned with you know i've been i was raised catholic you know Mm. i sort of found my way away from the church at a young age it just didn't interest me uh and and then thanks to cannabis i found myself more and more interested in spiritual world almost like a it was almost like a, a revelation like smoking cannabis like reminded me like hey no and like hey 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 god's real what are you what is going on here you know and because i i did for a while i would kind of just even in public with friends and stuff you know make statements like oh yeah no god isn't real blah 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 and mm-hmm. I, I think it kind of it did send me you know at least vibrationally speaking down a negative path in life um and I, I luckily turned that around, but but when it comes to Catholicism, I don't know that I necessarily uh, you know set up on the right foot to begin with. Uh, you know, my research has shown me that there's some issues with the the Catholic Church's version of of Christianity. Um, I'm not trying yeah. to you know start any <laughs> debates here, and I'm not I you know you don't need to comment on my personal opinions on that. But yeah. as far as like. You know, the hermeticism and, you know, Enoch and whatnot, like it seems like the Catholic Church has integrated a lot of that understanding, but secretly without letting the public in on it. So that to me is suspicious and maybe why it took going, you know, outside of that frame and then coming back to God through a different frame to to fully kind of, I don't know, I do feel like ever since I've committed to path of being curious and inquisitive, uh, especially when it comes to creation and the God and God, that there's been a certain amount of grace that's been afforded. And mm-hmm. you know, people call that synchronicity a lot in, in this uh, day and age. But I wonder if it's not um, more to do with like this kind of divine inspiration that is waiting for all of us, you know, I, I mean, it, genius in a sense is a sort of like people have said it's kind of like the ultimate version of that where god like literally inspires tesla or michelangelo or whoever else to to bring like a completely new concept or idea into the world you know i and i wonder if on a on a lesser scale like people who are kind of astray like myself uh, you know, maybe instead of receiving some kind of genius insight, I get those little breadcrumbs that kind of bring me back into a, a, a better vibrational state where, yeah, who mm-hmm. knows, then those those greater things are allowed. 
I think that if you sincerely seek after God, I think he will honor that. And I think he will. I think, I think he, he wants to be known. I mean, that's, I, there's no doubt in my mind about that, that why wouldn't he, if you create an intelligent, intelligent beings, don't you want them to know you? So I believe he wants to be known. And I think he honors anyone who seeks after him. You can actually find biblical evidence of that. And, you know, in the scriptures, it will, you know, it will say, you will find me if you seek me with your whole heart. I think that's in Jeremiah or Isaiah. But the point is that, yeah, if you, if you seek God, he, he's not going to turn his back on you because he, he wants, he's, he's actually excited. He says, yes, you're, you're turning towards me. I'm wow. going to keep again. I'm going to keep bring, giving you the breadcrumbs, as you just said, to keep you turning towards me. And as far as Catholicism is concerned, I'm, I'm going to refrain from saying too much. I get accused on my side of being anti-Catholic. I am not. I am not against the Catholic people. My wife was raised Catholic. My best friend was also raised Catholic. So I'm not against the Catholic people. I do have some serious issues with the Vatican, the hierarchy, and some of the things that they have done over the centuries. But again, don't want to get into that as a whole other show. But right. I will say, and again, I, and I'm not saying that non-Catholics, I'm I was obviously a Protestant, if you want to call it that. I, I don't like the term Protestant because I'm not protesting anything. I'm just trying to be a good, I'm just trying to be a Christian. I'm just trying right. to believe in what the Bible says and understand it. But all that to say, people have been damaged by church, by Catholic churches, by Protestant churches. And it's really a shame because I think there are a lot of people who have turned away from God, not because of God per se, but because of what people and organizations and institutions have represented as God. And they will say, well, if this is what God is, I want no part of it. You know, if God is okay with, you know, people molesting children and being protected by the church, what are, I, I want nothing to do with God. So if God is okay with, you know, these pastors living in these huge mansions and flying in Gulfstream jets while they're, you know, poor and starving people in their same city, then I, I want nothing to do with God. And again, it's, it's a shame because that's not God. That's people and institutions. Right. And, you, and you have to separate that. And I think that's what you've, that's kind of been probably a bit of your journey is separating, you know, the creator, you know, the God of the universe from what the institutions have said about him. Right. Well, and, and if, you know, putting ourselves in these Nephilim shoes or Nephilim shoes, right, the, the, they would probably gravitate towards those institutions too to try to, you know, uh, throw people off. Right. I mean, that's kind of what I was going to ask with that statement. I got lost a little bit in my own, you know, personal <laughs> beliefs, but when it comes to like this idea of the rapture or the apocalypse, as some people call it, I don't know if those mm -hmm. two ideas are exactly synonymous, but, um, they're, they're, they're close. They're, okay. they're in the same ballpark. So it seems like there's like going a little, it, it can go a little, a step too far, at least from what I've observed with certain sects of religions where they believe that they're almost like hell's angels who have, you know, taken on this mission to bring upon, right. you know, rapture so that they, you know, by doing some sort of evil deed, bring God back, right? They're, they're like playing yeah. the role of the, the four horsemen's henchmen, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. God doesn't need your help <laughs> to bring <laughs> things about. But no, you're right. There are some, you know, extreme sects that do that, that who believe that, you know, they need to basically give God a helping hand. A lot of them. And again, I, I don't want to disparage uh, people who are all the evangelical um, uh, bent because not all evangelicals believe this, but there's a certain segment that are give like tons of money to to Israel to rebuild their temple. 
because they know that in the, you know, according to the Bible, in the end times, the, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt. Right. So they said, well, let, let's, let's work on it. Let's, let's give them money so that they can build the temple. And again, not against that per se, if you just want to, you know, if, you, if you're trying to pursue what you believe about the end times, but you, it's not your responsibility to do this. It's not us. It's not our responsibility to bring it about. Well, and also and, there's a huge geopolitical implications. Well, yeah. But no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm 100% with you. And yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it is a political football right now, so we yeah. don't need to get too deep into all that. But I mean, going back to something that Joe Atwill was talking about, I think maybe that was the episode right after you were on the show on Tinfoil Hat recently, and he, he brought up this idea that, yeah, the, there are groups of people who, uh, well, not really an idea, but more of a, the fact that there are, there are groups of people that have, you know, planned these events in accordance with their interpretation of the rapture. And I think that mm -hmm. You know, that might also lead people to, to be like, what the heck is going on? And I'm glad to hear you say God doesn't need our help with these kind of things. And clearly there are people who, who have lots of power that that are a little too maybe ambitious or, or arrogant, yeah. you know, and I think that they can play God. Yeah, I want to I want to clarify something, too. When I said God doesn't need our help, absolutely he doesn't. But I also don't want to give the impression that God is the one who— is trying. I don't want to give the impression that God is the one who wants to bring these end times about. He's not. God is reacting to what's happening. He is not causing it. So go, go all the all the way back to the beginning when you have you have the seven days of creation. On the seventh day, said on the seventh day, God rested. Now that doesn't mean you know God was tired because that's not, that's not what it means. When it says God rested, it, it, the correct interpretation is God ceased his activity on the seventh day. What activity? He ceased his activity of unilaterally initiating his will. The creation, God did it himself. He said, I, I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. But that was the last time in the Bible that God unilaterally initiates his will. He gave that that responsibility over to humanity. When it says that when the Bible says that God created Adam and Eve in the in his image, you know, it doesn't mean you know God has two arms and two legs like us. What it means is that he created him to bear his image. Adam and Eve and humanity were intended to be the image bearers of God. So that when creation saw Adam and Eve, they saw the image of God, which is why Adam was able to you know, name the animals and creation obeyed him until they fell away. And then they no longer bore the image of God. The point is that from Genesis chapter two through the end, God does not initiate his will. He only reacts to what we do. Every time you see God doing anything, after creation, it's always a reaction to us. So take it all the way for, you know, you talk about they, they commit original sin, God reacts to it. The Nephilim come, you know, the fallen angels create the Nephilim, and God reacts with the flood. The Nimrod initiates Babel, God reacts by confusing languages all the way to the end when you get to the point where, you know, people make their final choice and either to take the mark of the beast or not, and then God reacts with judgment. So my whole point in saying that is that it's not God's will to be judgmental, even though that's how he's portrayed in by a lot of people who believe, oh, God's just this judgmental guy sitting on a cloud waiting to bop you over the head with a hammer every time you do something wrong. <laughs> that's not his will. But he he wants us to do right. But he's also just and he has to react with right. justice. Well, 
I think that's a big, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's a big misconception a lot of people get with prophecy that it's that it's inevitability and not a warning. It's almost like mm-hmm. these these spiritually adept who who can kind of peer beyond. They'll get these explicit messages from God that are meant to be warnings and maybe are taken as inevitabilities. There's a great example. Thanks for bringing that up. There's a great example of that in, in, in the Bible, the book of Jonah. In the, the whole story, you know, Jonah gets swallowed up by the great fish and so forth and so on. But the reason it happened was God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is basically Assyria, and tell them that they're, that they're going to be judged. That, so that was a prophecy. You know, and Jonah didn't want to do it until, you know, the, so he went the opposite way and he got swallowed up by the great fish and then the fish spat him out. And then he went to Nineveh and he, his message to them was, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. That was a prophecy. But what happened? The people in the, in, at the end of the book of Jonah, the king of Nineveh hears Jonah and he says, wait a minute, God's going to destroy us. And he makes a decree and says, you know, everyone, let's all repent of our wrongdoings and let's turn to God. And they did that. And then God changed his mind and he did not judge them. So that was, so the prophecy was in 40 days, you guys are getting destroyed. They changed their ways and God spared them. Meaning it was, as you just said, it was a warning. Now, if they hadn't changed their ways, yes, God was going to destroy them because God doesn't lie, but we have free will. And so that could mean that, you know, even though what I'm saying now, what we've been talking about with the speed of life slowing down and seem to be seeming to be accelerating towards destruction, that doesn't mean that we can't turn it around, that we can't say, you know what, we have been going down a really bad path as, as the human race. We're really low vibrational stuff. We're doing, you know, we're drugs and pornography and sex trafficking and all the horrible things we're doing. Why don't we as a society turn around, turn back towards our creator and and go back towards higher vibrational stuff? If that happens, then we've delayed the the inevitable. The apocalypse can be delayed. The speed of light or maybe um, the, the deceleration doesn't, I mean, the speed of light stops, doesn't slow down at the accelerated rate. So we can turn it around. We can bring more light. We have that free will to change things around if we want to. And that's that's really up to us. I love that. I think that's the that's the major takeaway that, you know, should be had when it comes to our religious institutions. And unfortunately, you know, nothing's perfect and, and things have maybe fall into that entropy we described, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's this sort of uh, test almost, right? Like the, the rapture is, it sounds to me, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like, uh, you know, we're being tested to some degree. And that choice that we're warned of, uh, you know, we will have to make one day, you know, maybe that choice starts like right now instead of, you know, when it's too late, when the whole yeah. world's falling apart. And maybe that's the big message there to be taken. I think we've always had the ability or or, or the opportunity to turn things around. I mean, if you, I, I look at the Bible in, in a few, in, in a couple of ways. One of the, the main way I look at it is it's, it's Jehovah's story. It's, it's us, it's him telling us stories about himself. And I, by stories, I don't, I don't mean that they're untrue. I mean, you know, just like if I were to tell you the story of, you know, my first day in college, you know, it had happened, but it helps you get to know me by knowing stories about me, my first girlfriend, you know, my first job. The more stories I tell you about myself, the more you say, okay, I know, I know Ed, I understand him. And I think that's the purpose of the Bible is for us to understand Jehovah, to understand God. But the other 
welcome aspect as far as it relates to us. I think it's a story of God giving us chances over and over again to turn around, to do things the right way. And granted, the, we, we have an unbroken history of screwing up, but that also means that we, we have the opportunity to not screw up. And I think, you know, he knows our nature. So I think inevitably, eventually we will get to the point where there will be an apocalypse and evil has to be judged. But, you know, and the, the good news is that the end of the judgment is when he, he brings the light comes back and we, you know, we, we will hopefully dwell with him for eternity mm-hmm. in his light. But we can delay it by being better. We can turn it around and go, and go back towards the light, literally and figuratively. But it's up to us. No one can say that, you know, if you end up in hell, we not we can talk about that at another point. But if you end up in eternal separation from God, it won't be because God sent you there. It'll be because you rejected him. You can't say you can't blame God for you not being on his side. It is your choice. It's all of our choice. And, you know, that's really what it comes down to. We we are the I wouldn't say we're the captains of our own souls you know, for the for the old poem. But we are definitely in control of our fate. We can decide. I love that. Yeah, I think that is something that we can all agree with, you know, no matter what walk of life, whatever spoke of the wheel we approach the truth from, <laughs> you know, and uh, that's kind of what I really, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to where science meets spirituality, that's what, what I, I initially expected to talk about with you. But I think we we've made a, a really strong case for God, you know, which at the end of the day, I'm always 100% for that. I've only seen it be a beneficial force in people's lives. Of course, there's there's a way that, you know, dogma can take it too far, but, right. you know, um, I've seen much healthier people living with the idea or the notion of God. <laughs> people without it tend to be a little less healthy. I mean, one one... One example is my grandmother, who's 95 years old, still living, still conscious, you know, still very much with it in many ways, and she prays all the time, and she's always had a very strong faith. So I like to think that part of her constitution in such at such an old age comes from, from that faith. And uh, yeah, it's inspiring, you know, to have someone like that in my life, and yeah. whether you do or not. Uh, yeah, consider folks listening, you know, to to branch out and find a, a bigger spiritual community around you. I think that's one another, you know, major point. You kind of touched on it when we just started the conversation and how like how, you know, easy it is now for all of us to get in touch with each other um, and and find a, a a common ground and community and I'm all for that. I've got many challenges in my own life and yeah the the more the merrier i could use all the help i can get and and i'm happy to help everybody in in whatever way i can but uh yeah ed this has been really awesome i'm glad that you were able to join me again on the show and i look forward to having you back on now you mentioned your revelation series which we only touched on so i encourage people to Go and follow up with you with that series to learn more about what we were just talking about. Send me the link so I can put that in the episode description. Is there anything else? Is there anything else that you'd like to promote and and share with the audience before we wrap up? 
No, I think I've, I've covered a lot. So I, I appreciate, you know, the indulgence of your listeners. I know I can go a little all over the place because I've, as I said, I feel like I'm trying to drain the ocean with a water hose. <laughs> so there's like so much information that I want people to understand and I want to help. I mean, that's really what it's all about for me. I I want to help people understand this world from, again, from a, from a Judeo-Christian standpoint. But even if you're not uh, a Christian or, or part of that world, I just want to give you the information and you can make your own decision. So as far as promoting just, you know, my website, faithbyreason.net, that's where my revelation series is. It's going it's 60 episodes. I'm on episode 58 right now. So I'm almost done with it. Um, it's on YouTube as well. If you want to go directly to YouTube, um, also on rumble and yeah, that's, that's how you reach me. And I, I'm just doing it because I love these conversations. Um, I love helping people understand. I love teaching. That is my passion. And yeah, I would just keep doing it until I can't do it anymore. So, and I appreciate people like you, Mark, who have me on your, your shows to just, you know, give me another platform. Of course. No. Yeah. Likewise. You know, I, I love having these conversations and you, you drew a lot out of me today that I, I had hoped would come out on the show at some <laughs> point, uh, specifically the secret history of the world stuff, which I encourage you to, to check out that book. And I'd love to see how you, you know, interpret his work and, and maybe it's stuff that you're already familiar with. Maybe not. There's also yeah, Go I'll ahead. check it out. I, I'm familiar with, I haven't, re I've read excerpts, but you know, maybe, maybe uh, I'm inspired. Maybe I'll get the whole thing cool. and then just read it through. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a new, it's a, it's a bestseller, you know, to whether that's a good thing or not, you know, I don't know, but <laughs> uh, it, it's it, one of my favorite books, not just for the information, but before, before, for the comprehensiveness of the book is it's a very, um, well-written book. So that that'll just leave it at that. But there's another uh, topic that I'd love to have you back on the show to talk about it more in depth. We really we just scratched the surface today. You you kind of answered my questions, but I do have more when it comes to the Nephilim, Enoch, and this idea of the flood and and the information that has been preserved from that time in in its various different forms. Uh, so yeah. More to come. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to because I because one thing we'll touch on with that is how all of these these current the families that you know rule the world, the royal families, they all claim that they can trace their lineage back to to that time, to the to Samaria, to you know Babel and the Nephilim. So they claim to have that connection. So that yeah, we, we love to talk about that with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then what does that tell you, folks? If if all of these yeah. <laughs> people who are holding the reins of power have a, a common origin, and that should be at least disconcerting. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm excited to have you back on, Ed. You have an open invitation and we'll plan a we'll plan a show soon. But until next time, folks, follow up with Ed. In all the places, the links are in the description, and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Happy Valentine's Day. I love you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Ed Mabry. Uh, more episodes are available right now on the Patreon and the Substack. That's right, more episodes. Episodes that will be out this week. One with the great Sean Hibbler. Many people may be excited to see him back on the show. Uh, and so many more great episodes to come this week. I just talked to 
my friend Ryder Lee today about how flying saucers are a hoax and how they've been a military psyop from the beginning. That was just an excellent episode. I'm excited to put that one out as well. I'll probably do that this week. So please sign up on the Patreon or the Substack. Not only do you get an ad-free version of this show, you also get every episode's extension and bonus episodes that are only available for supporters, including a weekly show that Juan Ayala and I do together. You know Juan from the One on One podcast. And him and I were just on this show together this week. So listen to that if you haven't already. And thank you for tuning in to this interview with Ed Mabry. Go and check out all of his great work. His links are in the episode description. Big shout out to everybody on this Valentine's Day. I hope your Valentine's Day is going well. Um, Much love. And uh, for me, I'll be snowed in here in the lovely hills in the mountains of Connecticut and uh yeah that's just what's going on gonna sit back read a book make some coffee and i hope you have a great wonderful day wherever you are out there so trying to think if there's anything else i have to say any announcements for the show not really just support the show send us a one-time donation if you can on venmo or paypal that's always helpful Of course, the best way to support the show is to sign up on Patreon or Substack. And if you can't afford to pay to play well, you can always leave us a five-star rating and review. I always read those uh, when I get around to it. We haven't had any new ones lately, so uh, leave us a five-star rating and review if you haven't already on Apple or wherever you listen to the show. You can leave ratings and reviews on Spotify. And uh, speaking of which, when you do interact with us on the Spotify app, I will read all of your answers to the questions on the Patreon or the Substack outro. So for every episode of the show, there is a completely different outro just for Patreon uh, and Substack supporters. So if you want to listen to the full, uncensored, unadvertised Uh, episode of the show go on over to the patreon or the substack all right that does it for this episode again i love you hope you're doing well out there and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.